you think there's a strange odor perhaps it's a rat you try to overlook it keep it under your hat can't put your finger on it cause something's gone The sea walls are up and you're on the outside Her loyalty just went out with the tide You gotta sink or swim but you waited too long It's too late when the good time Yeah, I, de I decided to just put it on, and and then I could, you know, check levels while okay. it's tracking, and then and then we could just kind of ease into it, you know, because mm -hmm. I I like to I like to be pretty casual about this, make it make it just a conversation, you know. Sure. Um, and we're and we're pretty casual here. You're in your your PJs. And yeah, more or less. <laughs> <laughs> um. But yeah, I mean, I guess I guess I want to start by just saying, you know, thanks for for being on the on the pod. Um, I I've been admittedly feeling a little bit like under motivated these last couple of months, and 
Um, and so between that sort of, like, mentality and, like, uh, my friend Alex, who some listeners might know from uh, an episode that I did earlier in the year, uh, he had his dad on the show, on his podcast. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. Um, and He's just, gone now. Yeah, yeah. Chuck is unfortunately so no longer with us, but that was one of the reasons he wanted to have him on at the time was because he was, like, in hospice and shit. Well, that's cool that that, that got done. Yeah, yeah. It was it was interesting, too. Chuck, uh, you know, he, he worked for a lot of different people, did a lot of different types of you know, the sports casting and all that stuff. And and it sounds like, you know, th- this is just something that had never occurred to me before, but, like, he, uh, I guess, like, he wanted to be a radio commentator from a super young age, so he was, like, talking about, uh, you know, he would, like, set up these, like, pretend football games in his room, and he would, like comment on imaginary football games and oh, shit. Oh, yeah, I find that totally believable. Yeah. yeah. I think I think there's I don't know what it is, but there's something about uh, radio that captures certain people's interest and and they really do like from day one just that's what they want to do and uh, some people make a good living doing it. I mean, there's uh, you know Howard Stern's fabulously rich, you know, and <laughs> right. I mean, there's there are people who make a real fine living doing that sort of thing. Even though it's funny because radio, in a way, almost went away, and now with XM and Sirius and all this, all these other um, types of radio broadcasts. I mean, gosh, there's. There's opportunities. There's uh, well, yeah, and podcasts are basically the same thing, except right. you don't have to worry about the FCC. Just like with just with uh, right, you know, just like with XM and all that stuff. You know, there's a lot more freedom to it, which you know is something that I enjoy a lot about it. You know, I can I can have an episode that runs for two hours, like I did a couple months ago with Chris Ford. Um, whereas you know, on normal commercial radio you would never hear an interview with a single person that goes on that long you know and and you can really dig deep with people which i think is is fun i mean not that not that i'm always digging deep with people but uh you at least have the time you know well yeah it it affords you opportunities and you know the other thing is i think as things change and permutate you know uh the people the people who are looking ahead and looking to do new things create opportunities for themselves that other people you know miss initially like like for instance if you watch if you've ever watched um Daryl Hall's, you know, from Daryl's house. Sure, I've seen a couple TV of those. show, you know. Yeah. I mean, those guys those guys were some of the first guys to, to ever do MTV videos. And then later on as the internet developed and stuff, Daryl saw that opportunity and created a, um, another um, career for himself in a way. Yeah, hosting those shows yeah. and like 
having different people on there and collaborating with them and stuff. I the one that comes to mind is I I saw him do one with a singer called Alan Stone. Um, he has like he's got like red hair and like these huge granny glasses and oh yeah I've seen that guy too yeah he, he's really good he's a really fabulous singer I'd never heard of the guy until I saw him on there yeah but if he's on there you you know he's bringing something to the table yeah because not just anybody's gonna be on there well and that song he did on there um, I think it's called unaware uh, is just like a really really powerful song uh and friend of the podcast Stephen fisk showed me that one like several so like oh god probably 10 years ago he showed he showed me that maybe nine uh and and i was like oh there there's like a really cool video you can see where he's just like playing in some shitty little basement singing that song and like the fact that you can see that video of him singing it in this shitty little basement like in his mom's house or something uh-huh and then you can also see him playing it with with Daryl from right Hall and from Hall and Oates, yeah. <laughs> and I mean, um, but once again, Daryl created this this revenue opportunity for himself. Yeah, you know, he doesn't have to tour anymore. You know, he's had. I mean, I'm sure he's got plenty of money because he wrote all these hit records. But oh yeah, he's got. But a- you know, he's created a whole new situation where he doesn't have to have a touring band he doesn't have all those headaches you know i mean shit he probably doesn't even have to leave his house right because those are just like yeah filmed in his house yeah and then he has a bar too he has a bar near his house somewhere Uh uh-huh you know there's a couple of those guys up there in um new york uh up by woodstock Mm -hmm. that have that kind of situation like levon helm uh, for a long time, had uh, barn parties, uh-huh. and he had his his barn was like all set up, and and you would have to reserve your table and stuff. It was not cheap. I don't recall how much it was. It might have been one hundred and fifty bucks a head or something. Oh, wow! But but you know they went. They started late and they went late, and you know and hey, you've got. Levon Helm, who's one of the greatest singers, let alone drummers, uh-huh. and uh, you know he'd have um, um, Larry Campbell playing guitars and fiddles and stuff. And Larry Larry Campbell was with Dylan when I saw Dylan at the Hilton Coliseum. He's a fantastic multi instrumentalist, and he produced. Uh, Levon's last few records. Mm-hmm. Levon and, Helm is still making records, huh? I didn't even well, he, know. Well, he passed away. Oh, okay. I yeah. I, he passed. It's away. difficult to keep track. <laughs> yeah, which but, is something that I'm always impressed with. With you is like you you know so many people's um, like like this guy was in this band and this band and this band and he's got all these solo records and he's toured with this guy and like um there's like so many of these guys that i like i don't have any idea who they are until you're like oh yeah well he played guitar with blah 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 and blah 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 and blah 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 you know oh, uh-huh. and um <clears throat> they're names that most people wouldn't have any idea about but but you're sort of like you have this 
you know, borderline encyclopedic knowledge of a lot of these, uh, you know, roots rock guys and yeah, I was gonna say blues I, guys. I have and, no current knowledge, <laughs> <laughs> but I have I have a, a lot of knowledge about uh, things before a certain year. I'm not sure what year it yeah ends, but <laughs> it probably tapers off. Yeah, uh, I think about pu- the time Public Enemy came in. That was probably where it kind of rolled off. And I, <laughs> you were just like, "All right, after this, nothing yeah, else yeah. matters." Huh? I, I did see Public Enemy. It was great. But. Hell yeah! I, I I love that story that you have told about uh, something about Flavor Flav like pretending he's taking a shit uh, <laughs> on the top of the. Uh, the the speaker monitor yeah he did that because <laughs> it, it was like a line about elvis right yeah they were yeah there's there is a song that that makes a reference to elvis essentially he says elvis didn't mean shit to me uh-huh. um and uh which i don't agree with but i can understand where that would be flavors, uh, flavors. Uh, <laughs> that would be his viewpoint. Well, I think it's yeah. I think for a lot of people of color, Elvis feels like you know it's it's just like you know the guy who kind of stole what other people were doing or like you know made money off of other people's oh, culture yeah. kind of thing. Absolutely, you absolutely. Know. But Elvis was a terrific artist. Um, um, I mean, he really was. I mean, don't watch his movies because that won't back me up on this. But, <laughs> you know, but he really was. He was a really, really gifted vocalist. And, uh, oh, yeah. And... Great. Yeah. yeah, he was a he was a really good singer, if nothing else. And, and you know, you can't, you can't say enough about just like his stage presence. I mean, people lost their shit watching him. You know, back in the day. Yeah, yeah. They they completely lost their minds watching him. Well, he he was a great looking guy, and you know, in pop music even today, I mean, it doesn't really matter how good you are so much as you know the what, presentation. Yeah, yeah. Like all the all the women pop stars all present themselves like they're porno actresses or something, you know, <laughs> to to get people's attention. Well, and it's it's similar with men too, you know. There's, I mean, they're not like, they're not walking around necessarily in thongs or something. But like a lot of the, I mean, I guess in my opinion, Ed Sheeran looks kind of weird. But I, I'm sure there are a lot of people who think he's like really cute or something, or like, or you've got like the boy bands or the, you know, right, you know, whatever. There's there's plenty of it's that. It's marketing. Yeah, yeah, there's plenty of that sort of image thing, and, and sure. Yeah, you you could you could create an image for for a guy like Elvis pretty easily, you know. You just oh yeah, slick back his hair in the fashion of the time, and uh, yeah. Uh, but he was terrific. But he was a really good singer. I mean, you all you have to do is listen to uh, "I Can't Help Falling in Love with You." Oh yeah, you know. I mean, that's a. I think there's a lot of his earlier stuff that that doesn't feel as relevant now, but that song actually feels like it's held up really well to i mean it's one of those things you'll hear people you know in the before times you would be at carl's and somebody would put that on the fucking touch tunes and and uh you'd have a whole bar of sing of people singing yeah. i can't help you know um 
There's a, there's a great version of that by a um, gosh, the guy's name escapes me right now. He's an Italian singer who's um, sightless, and and he sings it. It's a it's a live video. It's on YouTube, mm -hmm. and it's unbelievably good. How, how well this guy sings that, and when you hear it done properly. It is devastating, man. Oh yeah. But but you know, well, get, in, in getting back to Elvis, that I have um, LPs of the the Sun sessions before he signed with RCA. You know. Oh yeah. And the Sun records, you know, were produced by Sam Phillips in uh, Memphis, mm -hmm. and they're incredibly good. I mean, just amazing, and it. It's real stripped down. It's almost like listening to early Johnny Cash, mm -hmm. but it's rockabilly, man. Mm -hmm. And at the time, that was a new thing. That was an almost unheard of thing. And um, and Elvis would be doing songs as rockabilly tunes that were really, you know, um, more in the vein of the Carter family or or bluegrass, you know. Mm -hmm. And he'd uh, he'd take them and change them up, and man, they're fantastic. And those rhythm sections would really be cooking on those oh, too. Yeah, you know, from like the the brush snare stuff to like the the upright bass players, you know. Yep, the slap and upright bass players. I don't know how they do it, but man, <laughs> it's a powerful, powerful thing. I, I I wish I could do that. You know, you can't be good at everything. You know, yeah, but that that's one thing I really truly wish I had learned to do. Do you think it's too late now to to develop that? I mean, you probably got, is. You've got your uh, upright over here. I'm probably more likely to learn to play the piano than learn to slap upright bass. But uh huh. Do you think? Do you think? Um, do you think that would be like nice to to like? Uh, help with writing songs when when you're not like interacting with the band so much in your you know covid downtime like playing more piano is that something you've thought about doing much well i have thought about it and I, the piano is pretty badly out of tune yeah but as you like that one night we were trying to figure out some voicings mm -hmm. i i can i can find voicings on a piano that would be hard to duplicate on the on the bass, on the Fender bass. So. Yeah, or on a guitar even, because... Yeah, I'm a terrible guitar player, so... Yeah. <laughs> um, <clears throat> but, yeah. I mean, even even a really good guitar player, there are certain things you just can't do with your hands. You right, know? right. Certain voicings that just can't exist on guitar. Well, and, and people develop their own style by... Um, how shall I say this... Uh, by utilizing um, what comes naturally to them. Like I was watching a thing, I was watching a YouTube video last night of Ry Cooter, and he was talking about his two favorite guitars that he uses and explaining where the pickups came from and everything, because they're all Frankensteins. Uh -huh. but, um, but he was commenting too, you know, well, I don't, I, I, I don't play with a pick. And I, he says, I can't play with a pick. I will always finger pick. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and I, I just thought, well, see, that's where you develop a style. 
and that that becomes your thing and that and that's okay you know i think it's i think it's interesting the things that um yeah, there's a lot of things like that where people, you know, will sort of attribute somebody's brilliance to like something that comes out of necessity, actually, right. or or like something that might have even been a mistake or something they oh. they never ever even thought or a about. Handicap. Yeah. You know, Django Reinhardt. Right. You know, with two fingers on his uh, left hand, mm-hmm. or uh, like Neil Young. Most people don't know Neil Young uh, had polio mm-hmm. when he was a kid. And subsequently, his left hand isn't real good at arpeggios. Um, uh, So he tends to hang on one note and just work that note. Mm -hmm. But but it makes for a powerful, powerful sound. And it also, um, it's identifiable. Yeah. It's his thing. Well, and and I love the there's a there's a video you can find of Neil Young talking about his uh, I think it's like a Les Paul that has a Bigsby on it, right? But but he refers he refers to to it as the Wang Bar, uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and and I bet that's one of those things too, where like if he's trying to do a solo, the fact that maybe his left hand is less mobile means that he's going to lean a little more on that Wang Bar, as he calls it. Yeah. Well. <laughs> It's funny because he can play acoustic guitar perfectly well, mm-hmm. but when he plays an electric um, and he goes to solo, he doesn't have the kind of uh, uh, dexterity dexterity that a lot of guitarists have. Mm-hmm. But man, he can just he can just find a note and just drill it into your head, and man, there's hardly anything better. You know, he, he's yeah. amazing. I like know? I like his his style of soloing a lot for sure. It's very uh, visceral, you know. Yeah. Oh yeah. Like it's very it's very emotional. Like when you get somebody like that who isn't you know lightning quick with their left hand. It, my feeling is that a lot of times what they come up with for for ways to express themselves are are maybe a little more exciting than hearing like. A hundred notes within eight bars, you know. My my girlfriend Jean put on this Neil Young record uh, in the car, a CD uh, called Weld. That's kind of a from the live Rust era. Mm-hmm. Um, it's him with Crazy Horse, and uh, man, it's a powerful record. It's unbelievable. It's live, and uh, there's some real evocative playing on it. Mm-hmm. From him and Crazy Horse. I mean, that's one thing uh, uh, I've noticed recently is there's certain bands like cra- him with Crazy Horse or him with Willie's Kids. Um, Promise, oh, the Promise of, of the Real. Promise of the Real. I mean, these are real bands. They're mm-hmm. not a bunch of studio players that were thrown together and ought to play well together. They're real bands that have played together, and or like Tom Petty. You know, there's all this live Tom Petty out now, and it is unbelievably good because those guys put in the time, and you just, I don't give a damn how good you are. You are not going to get a bunch of guys who don't know each other and put them together in a room and get that kind of cohesiveness. Right, that, that energy. Yeah, yeah, you just can't. 
So. I, th- I think that I totally agree. I think that's one of those things that, um, I mean, there are some people who who can still get something good out of out of a you know, but 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 it, there really is a, a an element that is hard to really tangibly defined that comes from from a group of people who have played together for a long time oh yeah and it's true in every genre it doesn't matter if it's country music or rock or like blues i mean you're you're going to be hard pressed to find a better blues ensemble than muddy waters had or than alan wolf had you know Mm -hmm. um and it's and it's not because they're the best players. I mean, some of some of them were, but like in Wolf's band, it's all about the vibe, man. Yeah, I, you know those guys. Those guys are all wonderful, and I love it. But uh, they're not the best players that came out of Chicago. But they're boy, they were very effective at what they did. You know. Yeah, I mean, I think that's one of the. One of the artists that you showed me when you were sort of giving me that blues education earlier in life where, like, I I always thought that Wolf and uh, and John Lee Hooker were both just, like, really vibey. Right. And, uh, and I liked that a lot, you know? Yeah. And once again, here's a guy, John Lee Hooker, who, I mean, he was a decent guitar player. But not technically. I mean, but the vibe he'd get out of a guitar, nobody sounds like John Lee Hooker on the guitar. Well, and in, in, in that I'm Bad song, you know. Oh, Jesse James? Yeah. I'm Bad like Jesse James? That's a great song. I mean, there's there's the the sound of his voice when he says, I'm bad, you know, like that. Right. It's, it's like, it's something else. It, it doesn't exist anywhere else. No. Um, and I think that's that's the kind of thing that that I appreciate when it's when it's like that unique that unique of a sound you know of like a sound that's coming from this person that you just can't find anywhere else you know well and that's what makes people great you know I mean when you stop and think about it the people who make an indelible mark are the people who have their own unique sound and like like nobody sounds like the doors nobody sounds like you know um well they can try but nobody's going to duplicate the beatles nobody's going <laughs> to you know or muddy for that matter i mean there's a ton of blues bands that try to emulate the sound of muddy or the sound of um, uh, Little Walter, yeah. Little like. Walter was also in Muddy's band, but Little Walter also made records as a leader. And you know, it's it's the guy who has that unique slant on things that that makes makes waves. You know, Janis Joplin. Nobody sounds like Janis Joplin. You can yeah. try, but <laughs> good luck. You know. It's it's a rare it's a rare thing indeed. Yeah, yeah, and that's um, that's what separates uh, the innovators from the followers. Yeah, well, and um, I want to get back to blues in just a second, but like, but I totally agree. 
Um, and I feel like it's something that a lot of people lose track of, you know, like when you first start out playing music, you want to be like the greats. You want to like play guitar like so-and-so, play guitar like so-and-so. And I think if you go too far down that rabbit hole of like trying to emulate, you sort of lose sight of what was good about that thing in the first place a lot of times. And, you know, like... Certainly good. Well, I think it happens all the time. You know, um, I mean, I like to use Nirvana as an example because that's like a band that I was really into. And when I was a kid, like when I was in middle school or early high school, there were a lot of bands on rock radio that were kind of trying to sound like Nirvana, but didn't have A, the pop songwriting chops, B, right. the um, the punk spirit that Nirvana had, you know, the the like the sort of recklessness, you know, uh, and they sort of thought, you know, if you just kind of sound growly or shouty and you, you have quiet verses and loud choruses, that's kind of what makes people like Nirvana. And it's not, it's not really the, it's all the most surface level attribute, you know? Right. Um, and, and again, I think that's just a, it's just one of those things where, like, yeah, if you try too hard to sound like something, you're going to probably miss the point of what made that thing cool was that it was unique. Right, right. Yeah, and that's why the bands that distinguish themselves from the others are have staying power. You know, whether it's the, the Rolling Stones or the Grateful Dead or, you know, uh, once again, Muddy or... Yeah. Or even, you know, I mean, Miles Davis. Miles Davis went through all kinds of musicians and all kinds of styles. Yeah. But he always sounded like Miles Davis. Right. You Absolutely. Know? I mean. Because there really is a through line, whether it, like, if you put on a track from Bitches Brew, maybe one of the shorter ones, and then put on a track from, like, uh, you know, kind of blue or whatever. Yeah. Like there, there is a there is a similarity there, even though one is a bit stranger than the other. Yeah. It's like oh, they're totally different. It, but but there is like a I don't know if it's an aesthetic or a creative, um, or if it's like a creative sort of spirit that just carries through it, or or what exactly it is. But but yeah, when you hear him play trumpet, it's like that's that's Miles. Right. Right. Very um, much so. Yeah. And, and so you were talking about blues, you are talking about the Stones, and I kind of wanted to take it way back with you here because I remember when I was a kid and you were first showing me how to use the turntable and um, you got out your 45 of Get Off My Cloud <laughs> and you told me that was the first record you ever bought with your own money. I, I think it was the first Stones record I ever bought. Oh, okay. Do you uh, remember what the first record was you ever bought? No, I don't for sure. It would have been something silly. It would have been <laughs> like like a like a the monkeys or something. Well, no, it probably would have been more like Roger Miller singing "Dang Me." You know, I, you I don't know, even Roger know what Miller? that is. No. Oh, the, they're, they're <laughs> great. Roger Miller was uh, a country singer, mm -hmm. and and um, and I think he did. I think he popped a lot of pills. 
I think he was a speed freak, but he wrote these funny songs. I mean, he had one song that was called You Can't Roller Skate in a Buffalo Herd. <laughs> you know? And, I imagine that's true, though. But you can be happy if you have a mind to. You know? <laughs> I mean, that was the song, you know? But Dang Me was... Um, Dang Me was... Uh, um, Dang me, they ought to take a rope and hang me uh-huh. high from the highest tree, you know. <laughs> um, and he wrote um, King of the Road. Have you ever heard King of the Road? You know, I feel like I probably that's have. That's a really good song. That, and that's a little more conventional than roller, roller skating oh. and Buffalo Herd. <laughs> anyway, but yeah, it probably would have been something like that or something. Uh, of course, I had an older sister, mm-hmm. and she would buy records. And so I would kind of glom on to whatever she was listening to. And um, when we were kids, too, our parents used to take us to folk music shows, um, what they call a hootenanny. Um, Mm -hmm. And uh, so we kind of got introduced to music early on. My mom played piano. And uh, and my sister took piano, and she took. Remember, I was mentioning the the great piano instructor mm-hmm. she had, who was um, Speck Red. They called him. Mm-hmm. He was he was uh, African American gentleman um, who had kind of light skin, kind of freckled skin, uh-huh. and so they called him Speck Red. And he used to play. Um, he used to play at Vic's Tally Ho Restaurant uh, on Douglas Avenue when. Um, it was just east of Merle Hay Road, and that was the west side of town then. Uh-huh, right. And, um, but my sister took lessons from the guy, and the guy was a terrific piano player. And um, kind of in the style, I thought, of Nat King Cole. Uh-huh. Um, and you said that was kind of like one of your first introductions to jazz, right? First introduction to jazz, um, first time I ever met a person of color, although at the time, believe it or not, it didn't even occur to me that um, there was a difference between us in terms of racial um, identity. Well, I think, yeah, I think a lot of that stuff is, you know, forced onto people. Well, when you're a little kid, their, yeah. you kind of just accept people as they are. Right, exactly. Without giving it a whole lot of thought. We used to go to their house, and I'm sure their house um, was further east and was probably what people would now call, you know, the ghetto or or such and such a neighborhood. Um, but they had a perfectly nice house. His wife and kids were great. Um, but he was a terrific musician. Um, and ironically, talk about Vic's Tally Ho, um, there's now a, a, a mall location at Merle Hay Mall called Tally Ho to Go. Really? And, and it's some of the people from that family. Huh. And they were the kind ta- of bringing it Tallaricos, back, huh? Des Moines. Oh yeah, they had also they had um, Sam and Sam and Gabe's, I believe it was, uh-huh. out there in West the uh, Urbandale. Yeah. Um, but now they have that place at uh, well, Laurel Hay. I haven't been there yet. Well, but. you know, when I was uh, when I was a teenager, Sam Tallarico was the drummer in uh, uh, that band with Stephen Banks. 
who some right. of some of my listeners might know Stephen from a band called Submerged that he was in with Justin Rung uh, a few years back. Um, and yeah, in high school, they they had a band called Swallow the Glass. <laughs> the um, wow. The Sam Tallarico was the drummer. Uh, so that's that's an interesting. Uh, Interesting little they've connection. Been, they've been small Des Moines. Yeah, they've been around a long time, and they've had a lot of great um, Italian restaurants. <clears throat> but I was curious about the Stones, bringing it back to the Stones, because I I have this idea in my head, and please tell me if I'm wrong. Um, but I have this idea in my head that you were probably getting into the Stones and probably the Beatles. You said you saw the Beatles on Sullivan and stuff, and like. Um, and then, of course, you you sort of many years later were sort of known as a blues guy, at least around these parts. And um, I'm sort of curious where the where the transition was for you of like, or where the realization was that like this is sort of where the Stones came from, or like. Well, I used to when I was a kid. I used to buy magazines. There were all kinds of silly magazines that would have. Um, Pictures of the monkeys and all this foolishness, but but there was one called Hit Parader, sure, that would have interviews with people and the Stones, particularly, would mention Howlin' Wolf and Jimmy Reed and all this, and I went out and and looked and found Jimmy Reed records, and I think I one of the first two blues records I bought was Jimmy Reed's Greatest Hits, and I still have a copy. Um, the first two records I bought that were blues were uh, Mississippi Fred McDowell mm-hmm. and uh, Jimmy Reed. And uh, I found out about both of those artists from reading stuff Clapton said or stuff that the Stones said. Mm-hmm. The Stones actually... Um, got Howlin' Wolf on TV, which <laughs> they must have had a lot of influence because he really stuck out on this TV show, but he, he kicked ass. He was great. Did you actually get to see that in I've, when it aired? Um, I don't recall that I did. The show was Shindig, mm-hmm. um, but... It, it's still a you can see it on YouTube any day of the week. Right. I mean, um, and um, the the backup band had guys who ended up playing with Elvis. Um, Leon Russell was the piano player. Uh-huh. Um, um, they were the Shin Dogs. Because <laughs> uh, they got together just to play on Shindig? Yeah, they were studio guys. Uh-huh. Um, but um, yeah, that Wolf got on TV because the Stones insisted, and that was when the Stones still had Brian Jones in the band. You know, uh-huh. so that was real early on, sixty-five, sixty-six. Well, they must have had a lot of clout just because they were like, you know, one of the biggest bands in the world. You oh know? yeah. I yeah. mean, I'm sure if the Beatles had thought to like advocate for somebody else, they could have done. You know, they could have done something similar, but they just like. I don't think the Beatles had that same kind of like rootsiness to them. They, you know, they kind of liked um, Motown. Yeah, they covered some Motown songs, but 
and where, like little richard i guess but yeah. like they didn't need little richard they didn't need to put little richard on you know they didn't need to like make him more famous yeah so. richard was famous already right um but uh yeah the stones i mean the, some of the stones early records had little red rooster which is a willie dixon song and right you know i mean i just want to make love to you and stuff like that you know were their versions of these blues songs you know before they even started writing songs well and they also did like i want to say they did who do you love long 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 before the corny like rock version that you hear on classic rock radio now you know uh, uh oh the uh george thoroughgood yeah 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 i yeah. couldn't remember the guy's name so i was just yeah, gonna yeah. call it the corny rock version and call it but but i'm glad but i'm glad you remembered it so we could call yeah, it out yeah i think originally that was a bo diddley song right right i think so too um um but yeah no i was just i was uh i was sort of curious about that and um you know, just about like how you got, you know, um, interested in playing the style. Because, like I said, I, I'm sure there are some people who met you through other things, but it seemed like for quite a while you were you were known as a blues guy. I mean, Iowa Blues Hall of Fame and and all that. Um, so, like, just what got you interested in playing the style versus like playing rock or playing jazz or whatever well jazz i i made a conscious decision that i wasn't going to be a good jazz player i mean not a decision but the realization yeah <laughs> that i you know that it takes a whole lifetime to learn to play bebop properly uh-huh. And some people can do it and some can't. And I, frankly, I don't think my brain works that fast. And certainly didn't back then because I was too stoned. Yeah. Um, and um, I always gravitated towards rhythm and blues. I had friends who had who were in rhythm and blues bands when I was in high school. They had horn sections. They had a Hammond. You know. Wow. And. Uh, was it easier to get a hold of a Hammond organ back then? Was that like something that that you could like go to your friend's place and they just had one of those more often? Um, they were probably more common than they are now. Yeah, but they still weighed the same. <laughs> um, right. I, I remember my friend's band. They were the Soulful Emotions. Was the name of the band, mm-hmm. and they were playing in. Um, what was then called the Mydak building, which was, I think, the original W or YWCA. Okay. But was on... Downtown? The, yeah. It's long gone. I don't even remember where it was. But but it, it was three floors up. Mm-hmm. And we carried this damn Hammond organ up three flights of stairs. Wow. Um, and they were wide stairs, like you'd get in an old school building, you know. Still, though, three but three flights makes a, DGs look it, like a walk in the park. It was a bitch, you know. <laughs> and I wasn't even in the band. I mean, I wanted to be in the band, but they had a good bass player, and, you know, it just, there's no way I was going to get in that band. So, <laughs> um, so I'd tag along with my friends who were in the band, and... Um, 
I, I was friends with the horn players and the singer and the um, um, guitarist, mm-hmm. and uh, who was Jeff Shotwell. He's still around. Good, good guitar player. Um, and uh, yeah, we carried the damn thing up three flights and back down. And the guy who was the Hammond player, he's he's one of my Facebook friends, and I think he lives in California. He's a really interesting guy. Um, so what what time period would that have been? Like early seventies? That would have been in the sixties. That would have been oh pre nineteen seventy. Yeah, would have been yeah mid sixties, late sixties. 67, 68. So you kind of found yourself being gravitated towards playing blues through being into R&B. Right. Is that kind of what I'm hearing? Yeah, pretty much. I think initially I don't think I totally got it. Like when I'd listen to Mississippi Fred McDowell, I don't think I was sophisticated enough to fully appreciate how good it was. Uh Uh-huh. Um, whereas the Jimmy Reed stuff, the Jimmy Reed stuff, just, you can't miss it. Yeah. You know, and to this day, there's hardly anything better to listen to than Jimmy Reed. I mean, if you just want to put something on that grooves good and has good songs, Jimmy Reed's terrific. Tom Petty plays Jimmy Reed on the Tom Petty radio show all the time. Uh Uh-huh. You know. Yeah, I'm not real familiar with him, but I'll check him out now. Were were you writing songs when you were that age, too? Or were you just kind of thinking about getting into playing guitar, getting into playing bass, like figuring out how chords worked and stuff? Yeah, well, I studied studied chord changes and, and scales and stuff from my sister's spec red books uh-huh. um that spec red actually wrote out these charts and i've got the charts still here um but um i yeah i i learned uh i learned all the scales and the chord changes and everything um what was the question exactly Oh, I was I was asking if you were like if you were like into writing songs that oh. early, or or like kind of where where that impulse when that impulse hit you. Uh, you know, I came I I got to it late in life. Um, I was just trying to be a really competent bass player and uh, be able to play a few styles well. Mm-hmm. And I played in cover bands, um, which um, I don't know why we didn't apply ourselves and write songs. Because some of those cover bands were unbelievably good. You know, like I used to play with John Rowett and uh, Jay Alcorn. In Borderline. In Borderline, which was... You've shown me tapes from, like, bar gigs that you guys did. And, and yeah, some of the... Some of the performances are like actually really, really good. Like, like the I remember the the one of you guys doing under the boardwalk was like so spot on it was ridiculous. Like, yeah, and it didn't sound like the original. It's just us doing that song, and most of the most of the material John brought in. John provided ninety percent of the material. Mm-hmm. You know, Jay brought in some. But um, yeah, that was a really good band, and in a way, it was um, it was a band that was kind of ahead of the 
the curve in a way. Uh, a lot of the bands back then were trying to be commercial, um, and they'd dress up in ruffled shirts like they were playing in Las Vegas or something, you know. And we were, and we were wearing flannel shirts and playing little feet tunes and <laughs> stuff like that. Um, and and there were other bands that did that too. I mean, I don't want to act like we were the only ones. But, sure, sure. But there was only a couple of bands that would do that style of stuff. And um, and before Borderline, there was a band called Tomcat, mm-hmm. and that band had Rowett in it too. And a guy named John Lake from Iowa City, who's just an unbelievable musician. And uh, um, yeah, we. We were kind of ahead of the curve on all that. Um, that the picture of us in front of the Kaplan Hat Company, right? That was Tomcat. Where I've got the real long beard. That's Tomcat. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, do you remember what the first song was that you finished writing and like brought to a group or anything like that? Uh, no, I'm not sure. Um, I never had very much confidence in my songwriting. I never thought they were good enough, and they probably weren't. <laughs> and uh, I think I think the first time I really got serious about songwriting was when I put out um, my little CD called Crude Yet Effective, which I put out in 2001. Mm-hmm. So that was only 19 years ago. Um, but you wrote songs before that because I sort of remember you showing me like, again, cassettes of songs that like you had written that maybe like Hovey sang or or something like that. Oh yeah, there were like other there were, there other, were some yeah other songs before that. Yeah, um, the thing is about songwriting for me as opposed to other people is. Um, because I'm not a good vocalist, to be kind about it, um, I find myself writing for whoever I'm playing with. Mm. And so I tend to write in that style. I mean, frankly, I'd like to be playing blues right now, but I don't really have anybody to play with. Um, mm-hmm. I I don't want to be... Um, derogatory about about it, but there's there's a handful of really great blues players in Des Moines, and they are really really good. Matt Woods and you know the Soul Searchers and Malcolm Wells and you know um, Joe Price, Joe Price, yeah, but he's from Eastern Iowa. Oh, sure, sure. And and FYI, Joe Price and Vicky Price. Folks, if you have not seen Joe and Vicky Price, you your education is neglected. There's <laughs> nobody better in the state of Iowa. Unfortunately, we might have to wait for another yeah. year or something. But yeah, well, but but there, I'm sure there's a lot of good stuff of them online. Yeah, yeah, and they really are uncannily great musicians there's just the two of them joe and vicky they're married and um they bring joy when they play um vicky just beams 
the joy they bring, uh, the, the quality of the music. They write their own songs. Joe taps with his feet while he plays guitar mm-hmm. and plays guitar better in the style than almost anybody in the world. And um, uh, it's a terrific band. It's unbelievable. So look for them. So, so like, for instance, when you were playing with Matt Woods, the songs that you wrote around that time, you had Matt in mind when you were writing them. Is that? Yeah, absolutely. I could hear, I could hear exactly how they were going to go, and I knew how to play the style, and I knew how to write. The blues style is real easy to write for. Mm-hmm. And uh, well, yeah, because there's, it's almost like. It's almost like the grid on on my computer of like it's it's you know four bars of this four bars of this right um, that kind right. of thing so it's it kind of creates an easy template um, yeah yeah and like for instance when I wrote um, my song when the good times are gone I wrote it for John Rowett mm-hmm. uh, because John sings great country and John's a great country guitarist. And we record, we record the song in one night. You know, the vocals, the guitars, the bass, mm-hmm. boom, the whole thing. Um, it was already written, but I I could hear him singing it. We just had to figure out what key to play it in. Hmm. And it's kind of similar with the songs that you've written since you joined Stutter and Jimmy's band too, right? Like you, like you, I I want to say maybe. Um, Moonshine and Chloroform was one that you helped write? Uh, yeah. That, uh, um, but are those more, those are more collaborative though, right? Where like, you, not so much of you writing the whole thing and then bringing it to the band. Well, I actually had written that when we were doing the Thunderbolts. Oh, okay. With, with Matt Woods. And, uh, he either, wasn't interested in it or um i don't know we just couldn't get together on it yeah um i think frankly we were playing so many gigs that we didn't have time to rehearse yeah and um so it the song didn't get done and i had it i'd written it in um i think 2007 wow and and uh, it finally just saw the light of day last year right yeah um but that's a but well that's wild to me because you know for one thing I I don't think I remembered you even ever showing me that back in 07 or whatever but uh-huh. but uh but also because I just about can't picture it being played you know the guitar part being played by anybody other than Colin at this point or like you know well yeah yeah it it would have been different it would have it would have been a different style. I um, where the song kind of came together was when I decided that I was going to write a song that switched from major to minor, mm-hmm. uh, back and forth in the chord changes, which typically they don't. Um, and I'd actually the the germ of that idea came from a Beatles tune. Mm-hmm. Um, but of course, it sounds nothing like the Beatles. Has nothing to do with the Beatles. It's no, just but, conceptual. But that's know. kind of one of the interesting things I think about 
getting a, an idea from something and it and coming back to you know doing your own thing like the idea that you got from a beatles song you know it was probably never your intention to make the song sound just like that song oh, it sounds nothing like that song right yeah uh but but the but it's sort of like a fun transformation that songs can go through well yeah from that initial idea and i know we've had this conversation before but i'll say this for the podcast you know um one thing i i always try to do is if i'm writing a blues song is i always try and have one chord that's different or or uh, something in the arrangement that's different that differentiates it from all the other blues songs um, because that's how you create something interesting. Yeah. Um, Can you give an example of how you do that? Um, there's, there's one song where you go to the bridge and it's a solo and you go to a four chord and you go back to a one chord you go to a four chord, back to the one, and then you do a two chord, which typically there's never a, a two. In, you'd go in a to a song. two minor, and then to a five. Uh huh. Well, I made it two minor and four. Okay. And the four infers the five, in but a way. it's not. Yeah. Um, and it the law that it's in the law. Okay. It's the name of the song, um, or like. Um, there's uh, there's a tune uh, on one of the Thunderbolt records where um, it was supposed to be kind of like a Stax rhythm and blues song more than a regular blues song. And so instead of going to a four and a five, you know, like a typical blues, we went to a seventh and then a four and back to the one, hmm. you know. Um, like a like a like a, a major seven chord or no it's uh, like like if you're in C you go to a B flat uh-huh and then to an F oh right on four of four huh four of four sorry we're yes. we're getting really down in the weeds yeah. with the with the music theory yeah and stuff I hope now. I hope your listeners are following what I'm trying to say here. We, we probably have lost one or two, but it'll be okay. My articulation's not been as good as I'd hope. Um, <laughs> no, but I think that's a I think that's a really excellent point, and I, I want and it is one of the things I wanted to hit on uh, having you on here is like um, this concept that we talk about a lot of innovating within a style or within a, right. a the context of a certain genre or whatever. Because I think that that's, I think that's a really important thing, you know, that that like some people maybe overlook or or they just like don't know exactly how to go about it or something. Um, I'd never accuse anyone of like trying to be generic, you know. Like I don't think that's a fair Nobody thing. Nobody consciously right intends that. But um, but yeah, I. Uh, I think that's an interesting thing. So yeah, whether it's it's an issue of you know we'll have the just like a chord that's different in this song or or um, it only takes one yeah yeah you know, to change it up to to create something different you know and that's the other thing uh, you know um, 
people tend to want to learn the stuff that came before, and that is a great way to learn your instrument and to understand um, how the, the, the particular genre works. But in the instance of kids, like kids who take jazz band in, in school, you can learn a lot in jazz band, but, but the people who, who you're emulating were the innovators. Mm -hmm. They're not the ones who, who go into school and learn to play, take the A train, you know, or, or attempt, attempt to play um, heavy weather, uh, weather report song, you know, uh -huh. uh, because, hey, kids, you can't do it. <laughs> you know, I'm sorry. Well, it won't be just the same at the very well, least. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. And and I mean, it's a valuable way to learn your instrument. But beyond a point, you have to you have to innovate or you're just rehashing stuff. And and that happens a lot in blues. Um it happens in country. Mm -hmm. It happens in just about everything. In rock. You know, the the sad thing about rock is Nobody plays rock and roll. They only play rock. <laughs> you know. So this is something that that I thought it would be kind of fun to visit as well because this is this is one of my favorite little tangents of yours is is the 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 distinction between rock and rock and roll. Uh, which which I don't know if I've ever heard. Shall I make that distinction? I, I don't know if I've ever heard anyone listeners. explain it the same way, or like or like even have an idea of of there being a difference. And so I think it's it entertains me at least. So well, the, in my book, the difference is earlier we were talking about the sun sessions that Elvis did, where they're playing rockabilly. Um, the Stones are the only ones that I can think of that play rock and roll because it's got the swing. And why? Well, first of all, because Keith Richards is a brilliant rock and roll guitar player. And secondly, because Charlie Watts swings because Charlie Watts is a jazz guy. Hmm. Um, so you don't think that like... You, the swing is what makes it roll. So you so you don't think, uh, for instance, then that like early Doors music, where they were influenced by like Coltrane and blues artists and stuff like that, really was ever rock and roll. Um, to me, that's rock. That's interesting, because I feel like there is a swing to. Well, like for instance, I mean, I know it's a, like a completely different type of swing, but I feel like there's a bit of a swing to like the end like there there's like a the, there's there's a certain kind of beat there that there that you don't really hear on a like when i think of a rock band like a classic rock band you know i think of like maybe a van halen or something like that you wouldn't hear that type of beat on a van halen record or like a uh or like a zeppelin record even which like i would say you could argue that some of their stuff swings too but um but but they they would probably mostly be a rock band, right? In your book, uh, right? Um, and and it, and it's not about splitting hairs, but I'm just I'm just curious no, whether you've thought of of about uh, some of these things. Well, like I said, the Doors are one of the bands that distinguish themselves by being different. Yeah, you know, I mean, more so than a lot of bands. 
Or like um, uh, Love Street kind of swings, too. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, there is a swing element in there because John Densmore um, was big into Coltrane and, and, you know, Robbie Krieger, man. He, um, but rock and roll, um, rock and roll kind of ended about the time rock took over, you know, about 1968, 69, 70, you know. Mm-hmm. That was kind of the end of it. Um, I used to play in a band. Um, when I first got out of high school, myself and, and some friends here from Des Moines who are still good players, um, we moved to Colorado, and we played in this band with this guy. His name was Co- uh, Kenny Polachek, and he was um, from L.A., and he had real, real long hair and uh, played real, real good guitar. And he'd been on the road with Ike and Tina Turner. And they were playing back then this funky rock and roll that the Stones kind of appropriated, and which brought us Honky Tonk Woman and uh, Brown Sugar and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And that was kind of the tail end of the rock and roll swingy stuff. You know, the Stones still do it occasionally, you know. Sure. But most of their stuff that got really big, they were getting more experimental and they were doing Midnight Rambler and stuff, which is blues derived, but it's not got that Chuck Berry swing. That's the thing. Keith. Keith is the torchbearer for the Chuck Berry swing, you know? Mm-hmm. And to me, that's that and the, the swing and the drums is what makes rock and roll or rockabilly um, a distinct style. Hmm. Well, that's, that's really interesting. Because, um, yeah, I just, I've never heard anybody draw the line the same way that you do, but I, I think that it, what you say about it makes more sense than what I've heard other people say about it. Like, like for instance, there there's like a podcast I listened to with a couple of like professional music critics, and they would talk a lot about movements in music. And um, it's almost useless to listen to critics talk about music, but but nevertheless, I listened to this podcast, uh, which I think was called like Music Exists or something like that, and. Uh, and uh, there was an episode where they were talking about how in their brains there was it was almost just like a distinction of eras. And it's and it's funny because they actually drew roughly the same line that you did, but they didn't attribute it to the same things. So like they said in the 70s was was pretty much when it, people stopped calling it rock and roll and started calling it rock. And it was it's been rock more or less ever since, but there's yeah. been alternative rock and stoner rock and all these subgenres that have sort Absolutely. of you know yeah. squirreled the, out of there. Kind of the dividing line for me is like Jimi Hendrix and Cream and stuff like that was the beginning of the rock style. Mm. Um, well, and interestingly, some of those bands are sort of attributed with inventing metal if you go back far enough to right um because because like black sabbath were fans of cream sure cream was fantastic and that kind of stuff so you know uh so i think that's kind of an interesting thing that like you could just about 
put the beginning of rock and metal at like uh, exactly the same. Cream, I I shouldn't say this because people are going to hate me for it, but but Cream really was rehashing blues tunes in a, a rock style with very little discipline in terms <laughs> of, you know. That's not nearly as hot of a take in 2020 as it would have been maybe in the 80s when people still cared about what Clapton had to say, you know. Well, I, <laughs> I think Eric Clapton's a terrific musician, and I know people, people throw all kinds of slag at him, you know, for this or that. Um, he's done a lot of things, some better than others, depending on what you like. Yeah. But he's a terrific blues guitar player. He's and he's a good singer. He's good. He's he's got it, man. Um, and I even saw Cream. Cream played in Des Moines at Vets Auditorium, um, and um, they had very little discipline. It was just like blowing it out their butts. I'm sorry, but they were. <laughs> and um, um, that to me is rock you know mm -hmm. just sort of sort of just going for it regardless of whether it'll be you yeah. know whatever will be will be kind of thing yeah and, and i mean it and certainly there are disciplined rock bands too there are bands oh, that are absolutely you know, tight rock absolutely bands. i'm not saying it it's an undisciplined style i'm saying in their particular case when they played live shows there was it was not tight they barely listen to each other. You know, <laughs> they didn't like each other. Yeah. You know, I mean, you, they barely looked at each other. I think I always think it's a shame when you when you hear about all these all these old bands who couldn't stand each other. It's like you know, because because most of the time you you start a band because you're friends with somebody, and <laughs> yeah, well they get on each other's nerves, I imagine, and egos, sure, sure. being what they are, and. Then you mix in the money and the chicks and the drugs and there's a lot of opportunity for trouble there. I know? love I love how often on this podcast uh, the, the the detrimental nature of ego comes into play. Uh, this is like the third episode in a row that that it's been mentioned. That, oh. like ego is harmful to good art, you know. Um, um, yeah, you could certainly. I it might be. Difficult to create good art without ego, but um, but there's a but if way, you let it run, there's a way to manage it. Yeah, you know. But the, all the great guys, particularly the ones we've lost the last few years, you know, Prince and Tom Petty and guys like this, even though they're they were probably really good people. Um, they had to have that ego to be able to do what they did, particularly a guy like Prince or a guy like Mick Jagger or anybody you want to talk about, you know, like in the rock, you know, probably David Lee Roth and all those kind of guys, you know. I mean, I don't think you can do it if you don't have... A high opinion of yourself. I don't think you can pull it off. Or at the very least, you have to be able to pretend you have a high opinion of yourself. Yeah. Well, you that's know? that's why. Which is, I mean, I think that's a big uh, struggle for a lot of independent musicians. Is is you know being 
uh, I don't know if it's confident enough or or just like self-absorbed enough or whatever you want to call it to to like actually promote yourself to yeah. the level that you have to and I, stuff like that. I totally agree. You know, I mean, it's a it's a difficult thing, especially when you uh, when you look at things realistically and you say, "I'm one of a million singer songwriters." You know, right? You know, yeah, we got plenty of guys who strum a guitar and write songs. You know. Yeah. We could really, we could really do with somebody to play harpsichord or something. <laughs> somebody to do something different, for God's sake, you know. And actually, there there have been some bands that have tried to go for stuff like that. Like, there's uh, Vampire Weekend has harpsichord on some albums, and like, yeah. you know, there's 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 some interesting people out there trying to do stuff. But but yeah, it is. It's just it's just difficult to, I mean, just just have. You know that balance of like allowing yourself to have enough ego to like care about it enough to like make other people care about it, it but then also not to let it run your life. Well, and and once again, that's why I was saying earlier. You know, when I go to write songs, a lot of times I write a song for the individual I'm working with. You know, whether it's Jimmy or or Matt Woods or you know, because a front man, I'll tell you what, a front man, I don't, they're hard to come by, you know, and if you don't right. have the right front man, you're, you're going nowhere, whether it's locally or nationally or whatever. Yeah. You know, if you haven't got that, you got nothing. Some, you know? Somebody who leads and has a presence. Yeah, I'd, I'd love to be, like I said, I'd love to be out playing blues, um, but... Um, I've played with all the best guys, you know, um, and we've kind of explored that, and it'd be fun to do it um, with somebody of that caliber who, mm -hmm. who, who I hadn't already worked with for seven years or ten years, you know. Sure. I mean, the Soul Searchers are terrific, but the Soul Searchers are, are kind of a self-contained unit um, once again, my theory where the bands that play together consistently are the best bands. Yeah. You know. So, um, <clears throat> talking about songwriting again, because um, that's kind of what I like to always come back to here. Uh we we did a song together this, this year called A Nice Place to Visit, which... Um, is not like a conventional song in any way, but might remind some people of like a like one of those spoken word Doors songs, or maybe like a less specific Gil Scott Heron type thing, or something like that. I uh, hadn't thought of that. But, I mean, yeah. well, because he mainly did spoken word, at least right. to my knowledge. Right. Um, but like similarly, spoken word, jazzy, that kind of thing. Um, I know a little bit about where you were coming from on it, uh, but but I was sort of curious if the reason that you wanted to do a spoken word thing was simply that, like, when you were writing that song, uh, you know, th you knew that you weren't going to be writing it for anybody else. Right. That that was part of it, um, and I wanted it to be almost like. 
beat poetry or mm-hmm. something of that nature. Um, and so I came up with the ostinato bass part, which, for those of you not familiar with the term, it, um, it means the part is a repeating part. Um, goes on and on and on. And it's, it's a loop, basically. Yeah, it's like a loop, except I'm actually playing it. Right, right. <laughs> um, and um, I knew that I knew that Bobby Brown would be the perfect drummer um, for it, and it, it was my reaction to the Black Lives Matter things going on because because those skirmishes with the police and all that just reminded me of 1968. In 1968, Martin Luther King was assassinated. Um, Bobby Kennedy was assassinated. Um, People were burning down their own neighborhoods. I mean, it was crazy. And then they had um, the Democratic National Convention in Chicago, um, and there were riots there, mostly about Vietnam. And... uh, and the drift of the whole thing is what we learned since 1968. Apparently, not much. Right, you know, because we're still having the same, all of these injustices. The same things. Yeah. You know, you'd hope we'd evolve, but we don't seem to. Right. And if anything, we were backsliding. Sure, sure. Now, we'll see what happens going forward, but we, at least at this point, we have. We have reason to believe that some things could improve. Yeah. Um, um, I know that, at least on the local level, one of the things that I've noticed, you know, speaking of the backsliding thing, is that, that uh, or one of the things that I've heard about was that uh, even though the city council sort of moved that... Uh, that cannabis would be a low priority for police. They've been largely ignoring that. And, uh, and so we're, we're probably going to see a lot more ugliness here, um, before, before things get better. Um, yeah, I, as you know, I, I think incarcerating people for, um, nonviolent drug crimes is counterproductive. Oh yeah, um, yeah. We we can definitely agree but, on that but one. But I like seeing guns off the street. I hate to see people just driving their car down the street get shot, uh, right? By accident, you know. Yeah, stuff or on like purpose. That. Well, at all. Yeah, yeah. In general, but but I mean, there have been there's been quite a few instances where people were shot mistakenly or just got in the middle of a, a rolling gun gun battle mm-hmm. you know and i think i think that if if those raids put an end to some of that then it's a positive thing in that respect but yeah we 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 certainly won't won't really know what happened there because right. the police and the feds aren't exactly transparent with what they're doing. No. But um but I thought it was an interesting place that you started 
that song with of of uh, you know what have we learned since '68? Nothing, and um, right. And it was one of the things that made me excited to work on it, even though like I don't have nearly the axe to grind with uh, with streaming that you do that you know and that kind of stuff. But but and I and I understand the 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 quarrels that you have with it, and and of course it does need to be addressed. I mean they're not they're not looking at getting better about. Um, the compensation with the streaming stuff, but, but, uh, but it's, uh, but, but what I, but what I really appreciated was having somebody who was around at that time drawing that correlation because a lot of it is people from my generation who just have to like find their own history books because they're, because it isn't talked about enough. Well, and that's the thing, you know, I mean, that's why I kind of gave the little background information because there'd be people of a certain age that wouldn't know all that stuff happened in 1968, all all in just a bunch. And right. um, How, I mean, they were burning down whole blocks. Well, and also, you know, a lot of people of your generation, some people of your generation are speaking up, but but there's a lot of people who seem just too tired to do it or something. And you know, uh, people get older, they get more conservative, they get complacent. Yeah, you know, they've got their nice house in the burbs, and they're happy with that. And yeah, you know, the the thing I think as Americans, we've been so fortunate to be. To see all that stuff on the news, but we don't experience it. Yeah. And um, it makes us complacent because it doesn't affect us. You know, whether, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, Syria, you know, invading Iraq or whatever, all that stuff. Whatever it is. All that stuff. There's a, you know, we won't start enumerating <laughs> right, it would, we could all be, of our transgressions there. We could be here all day discussing the yeah, the, the and I'm not things. Oliver Stone. I don't want to do that, <laughs> but but um, but yeah, I mean because it doesn't affect us, we don't care, and that's how we got to where we are as a country right now. I mean, people people are people are not more sophisticated than they used to be. I mean, when you listen to music that came out in the 1950s, and then you listen to music that's out now, there's no comparison. You know, I mean, Duke Ellington and guys like this, you know, these guys were sophisticated people, you know. I mean, that's the other thing, you know, we were talking about jazz earlier, you know. Um, One of the reasons I decided not to pursue jazz was because it had developed to such a high level that if you're a saxophone player, you've got to, you've got to study John Coltrane and stuff like that, mm-hmm. Charlie Parker, which is virtually impossible to play. Right. To even be competitive, to even, you know, I mean, if they developed it to such a high level, and now you listen to music and you got synthetic drums. That are just, they're not even being played. They're just on a loop. And you've got one chord, and you've got 
you know, a guy talking over it or singing over it or whatever, and I, I'm not going to get specific, and I know I'm probably going too far here, but... <laughs> well, but, it's, you know, it's understandable it that, that, you wouldn't, that you wouldn't be interested in those aesthetics because you grew up with something, and you, for so, so long you had more um, organic music. Well, and, there, yeah, there's a place for everything. And, I mean, um, there's a genre. Yeah, right, there's right. a, a but I think a listener for everything. Right, right. Um, and and so I don't think anyone can fault you for not being like an Ariana Grande fan or whatever. You know, like I, I, I don't even know what she sounds like. Yeah, but I think I think to your point uh, about how sophisticated jazz is and can be. Um, you know, if you look at what a lot of the people in New York are doing, the people who are like still trying to progress jazz, they will introduce some of those electronic elements in the way of like, oh, oh ma- yeah, maybe they'll maybe they'll run their bass through synthesizers, or maybe they'll like have just like a random random samples that they can trigger while they're playing stuff. Or sure, like, um, and that's innovation. And but also they will be students of your Charlie Parkers and and your Coltrane's and your Miles Davises who like, you know they'll, I know people who literally transcribe solos of people like that you right. know in college just so that they can even wrap their head around what's going on right you know, um, and I think that's that's a level of dedication that I personally will never have um, yeah. And, and so I think it's I think it is interesting. I mean, the stuff you're talking about, of course, is like in the mainstream. And I think I I don't think it's a hot take at all to say that to find really interesting music, you do have to look outside of top forty radio. You know, and I think that's I think that's been the case for a long time. You know, like I mean, there there was all there's always going to be a couple of artists in a given era that that are like really transcendent that are really popular but a lot of them get popular later after somebody like a rolling stone shouts them out you know right right or or somebody like you know um you know like like i know that you're not a fan of this either but like joy division i was recently hearing somebody talk about how nobody gave a shit about joy division when they first came out but like now their one album is considered like this kind of watershed moment for like that style of music and like sure you know so so i think i think it's kind of an interesting uh train of thought just to just to say that um a lot of things that are really interesting you know people might not be aware of while they're happening just because it's not in the mainstream and and you do have to kind of look but yeah but people who are interested in independent music will always have that uh, that impulse to, to search, you know. Yeah, I'd love to know if I. I'd love to know who's going to come along and shake it up like the Beatles did, you know, mm-hmm. because literally the entire culture, youth culture, right. changed. The first night they were on Ed Sullivan, mm-hmm. and and I mean, it's it's shocking, and and I I wonder what it'll be, and yeah. I wonder, will there be a different instrumentation? Will it be something other than a guitar? Will it be, you know, 
a processed like a keyboard. sequencer or something. Yeah, or or a vibraphone. Like when I was in college, when I was a freshman in college, I was going down the hall and I was passing by this room and there was this incredible music coming out of this room and there was a bass player and a drummer and this guy that I still know to this day and he was playing vibraphone through an Oberheim ring modulator. Mm. Oberheim ring modulator uh, changes the shape of a waveform, basically. Mm-hmm. So he had like a mic on it and it was... Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I mean, before you could even get a polyphonic synthesizer, uh-huh. people were running their Rhodes pianos and their Wurlitzer pianos through these ring modulators. Right. The first time I saw a weather report, they didn't even have a synthesizer. He was playing a Fender Rhodes through a ring modulator. Mm-hmm. You know. That's interesting. And it was the most fascinating music. I thought, wow, I have never heard anything like this. And um, that's a pretty rare thing, you know? Yeah. Well, I think, yeah, it's, it's, it's difficult because... I think on the one hand, um, there is a, there are so many subcultures now because the internet exists. There are so many subcultures mm-hmm. that things almost don't become popular in the way that they did back then because because not everybody consumes right. the same media. Right. So like, so you can't you don't have an Ed Sullivan. There is nothing like that anymore. You know, so there's not like one program that everybody is tuned into. Right. True. You know, whereas like. Well, even back then there were three programs. Well, right. But, but now there's not only. But there was only one with the Beatles on it. <laughs> but, but not only is there now like literally hundreds of television stations. Oh, yeah. But also, you know, YouTube, TikTok, Instagram, uh, Blah blah blah, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You know, and there's every single day there's probably hundreds, if not thousands, of albums coming out. And so so like movements are created in these sort of small ways and then once in a while you'll get a song that sort of grabs people, mm-hmm. like like uh you know, I guess the last example I can really think of, even though it's not my type of thing, once again, was like for whatever reason, Old Town Road was like a, a cultural phenomenon, and uh, it was it was a hip hop country thing. Oh, okay. um, yeah, yeah. But uh, but it was interesting for the people who were into those aesthetics, and and it was unique in that um, you'd probably never had a gay black guy singing a country song on top 40 radio before you know and that's what that is yeah yeah um yeah no but i think i think you i think those sorts of explosive cultural moments are going to become less and less because there are so many subcultures well i the only way anything's even going to come close to replicating the wave of like the beatles or or Elvis, yeah, is um, if it's something that transcends genre 
and it's something that is universally understandable mm-hmm. you know to people you know and i i know you've heard me say um uh the music that people gravitate towards is music they can relate to because yes they've had the blues or they've had their heart broken or they've you know this or that mm-hmm. you know uh that's why people like country that's why people like blues because man you you don't have to think very hard when when somebody's talking about the exact experience you've personally had yeah. and and uh i think that's the only way that anybody's ever going to have that universal big effect is if if they just are a person who can reach everybody like the way dylan does in in a way when dylan writes a song it, one of his really good songs yeah they're just I mean, people, even if you don't like his singing, you go, wow, that's a great song, you know. And it's because we all know he's telling us the truth, you know. <laughs> in in so far as it can be the truth when the lyrics are kind of crazy. But uh, but well, I, guess, I guess some of his earlier stuff is a bit more uh, explicit, but... But well, when but, I when I think of the great Dylan songs, most of the time the lyrics are sort of nonsense. But then once you get to the chorus, uh, you you sort of know what he's talking about, or something like that. Well, but, yeah, I mean, I think some of the best songs are the songs that we're allowed to interpret for ourselves that don't just beat us over the head with the message. Oh, that's definitely true as well. You yeah, know. yeah, and I know you think that. Um, well, shit, we've been yakking for a long time. Um, I'm not sure how long, because for once I don't have my computer screen like right in front of me while we're doing this. Um, well, we can call it. Um, I'm going to... I, I, I want to end it. I want to let you end it, really. I want to like uh, ask you before we finish up if there's anything that you'd like to close out with, any, any final thoughts you might have. Um, in terms of like just just stuff, just things you want people to think about. Um, well, I, I wanted to say, or uh, anything you'd like to plug as well. Yeah, well, I was going to say if anybody wants to hear the song we we're discussing uh, regarding 2020, nice place to visit. They can go to Bandcamp and look for my name, which is on Bandcamp. It's Scott A. Cochran. Um, I'll pr- I'll probably put a, a link in the in the show notes, uh-huh. um, and and also we might just have it at the end of the episode if you want to. Oh, good. Um, but anyway, I just wanted to to say that it's free. Help yourself, um, and feel free to share it if you choose to. Thank you. And you know the other thing I wanted to bring up for us. Yeah. How come when you go down the road? in your car and you have the windows down birds don't fly in (laughs) well you know there's a lot of people these days saying birds are fake oh is that right birds are not real okay that's why yeah yeah what have we learned since 68 nothing mythical john henry heroics rumple stiltskin gold no the american repetitive dream 
Monday rags to Friday riches. Carlin was right. They don't want you smart. They want you just smart enough to do the work without question. And we'll pay you just enough to keep you working week to week. Modern Bezos, Koch Brothers sharecroppers. Don't ask questions, we like you dumb. Tasty orange carrot on a stick. One foot in front of the other. The smell of leather. Click clack hooves. Unattainable carrot in front of snorting crater nostril. And yellow linoleum, Eleanor Roosevelt bite. Eight to five, pots, pans, rags, insurance. Blindsight is 2020, led into the darkness by the blind. 180,000 dead and counting, pawns in the game. Rich fools holding offices they used to sue. 2020, the worst is yet to come. 2020, Amit and Wexler are gone. Leonard and Phil, Talent Scout Shakedown, No Heart Radio, Download Brownload. Buddy, let me sell you something I don't own. What? Six thousandths of a cent per stream? I've got a stream for you and it's not revenue. Spotify Swatter, LP, CDs, 45s, live music. Buy direct, shop local, flush the stream. 2020, the worst is yet to come. What have we learned since 68? Nothing. <laughs>